Okay, um, thanks for joining us uh, for this episode uh, on The Long Road, a story about uh, life, resilience and getting through the other side. Today we have a very special guest, um, someone that I hold in very, very high regard, uh, an odd man, but a wonderful man, uh, Mr. Grant Cook. Welcome, Grant. Thanks, Danny. <laughs> nice introduction. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you very much. So, mate, you're a bit of a um, bit of a big figure around uh, the Central Coast um, and, and other circles, but um, you've had a very, very interesting kind of journey to where you are now. You you uh, grew up on the Central Coast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about growing up in the Central Coast in the 60s and 70s? Well, I'm a child of the 50s. Oh, wow. Just scraped in. Um, just had my third 21st birthday six months ago. Um, my dad is from the Central Coast. Mum was from Blaney. Um, dad came here as a cop in the 50s, met mum, and the rest is history. And um, and I've been pretty much on the Central Coast all my life, uh, stints overseas and a little bit of a sojourn into country New South Wales to run a pub at one stage. Lovely. What was growing up um, around there? What was the fixtures in your life when you were growing up around the Central Coast? Oh, mate, look, it's changed remarkably since I was a kid. Mate, it was the best place in the world to grow up. Little country town back then, Gosford. Um, everyone knew everyone. Um, if you wanted to meet your mates, you walked down to the end of the street. Um, I grew up in East Gosford, down in Caroline Street, in, a, in an old shack that's long gone. Uh, replaced by a mansion now, but um, we had a place that um, shook when the wind blew too too strong. It was an old an old shanty shack, and that's all Mum and Dad could afford. Um, Dad was a cop, and women couldn't police wives couldn't work back then. They weren't allowed to. Oh, they really? Were, they were forbidden to work. So um, Mum was Mum had four boys um, in quick succession. Um, Dad was a local, very well known detective around town back in the day. Um, and um, yeah, I said, mate, it was just an absolute pleasure to grow up. Adventures and you know, life back then was a lot simpler. You went out in the morning, you came back in the afternoon when the street lights went on. Ah, nice. So you probably um, probably got up to a little bit of hijinks there, but um, probably one thing that uh, would have uh, opened your eyes or, or gleamed your interest is uh, rugby league. So you started uh, fairly early in your rugby league days and um, ended up playing uh, top line for uh, Gosford Townies at that stage. Let's um, give us a rundown of how that went. Uh, well, I started my junior football at um, St. Patrick's at East Gosford. Um, one of the uh, Gosford Townies uh, lived across the street. So we, you know, Gosford Townies were the team when I was a kid. It's not like that anymore, but um, you just wanted to be a townie. Um, so I came through the um, the age, uh, the I should say the weight limits, you know, three, four stone sevens, five stone sevens, six stone sevens. Um, moved on to junior rugby league with Gosford Townies under 16s. So I played with St Edwards College, as uh, St Edwards College as it was then. Um, and um, progressed into, at a lucky break, uh, a fullback got injured when I was 18 and I played in a reserve grade semi-final, had a pretty good game. We lost the game, but it, um, I showed up a bit. And then we played the following year. I got asked to trial in first grade. 
um, against Balmain. Um, had a pretty good game in that one against uh, the Balmain Tigers when Alan McMahon and Neil Pringle and... It's kind of a big deal, isn't it? It's like an NRL team. Oh, it was massive. Team. Yeah. It was massive. Uh, mate, we got beaten 3-0 yep. against the Sydney team. It was four quarters because it was summer at Mount Penang when we played. Um, but our captain coaches at that time were the Dawson Twins. Dawson Twins. Yes. So um, I showed up. Um, got interest from Balmain and St George for the following year. Um, I actually went down to trial with North Sydney. The Bears, the beloved yes. Bears. Um, didn't make it, but they wanted to see me the following year because I was pretty slight. I was only 75 kilos oh, as a fullback. 13 stone or something, is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's not that. Not even that. Um, and I... Um, yeah, I came back to Gosford. Luckily, we came back to Gosford because we won the comp that year against John Mooney's Warwick star-studded Warwick side that had Steve McKenzie and Greg Hilliard. Um, they they went on to start with Parramatta and Premiership winning sides. So we had a pretty good year. We won the comp that year. and uh, But unfortunately, the following year, I blew my knee the first time, had a knee reconstruction. And um, having been in the cops, I wanted to move... Away, I, I joined the cops in '79. We won the comp in '78. Joined the cops '79, and then transferred to uh, Coffs Arbour in '83. So I played with the townies on and off, but the knee was giving me trouble. So that sort of took the shine off um, what might might have been a, a promising rugby league career. Ouch! And it's uh, it does happen like that, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Even the even the most promising athletes and players can get that, that one little injury that just uh, derails their whole thing. But uh, before I go back, uh, before I go on to your, um, your illustrious police career, um, what was it like uh, as a young man going into first grade in a one-team town? Well, mate, it was, um, it was you know, things have changed, but it, back then it was a big deal. I mean, that was... You know, it was Craig Cook's young blokes playing fullback for the townies. Uh, and the b- word was around town. I mean, everyone, it was... When we played Woi Woi um, that year in the grand final, they were undefeated. We met them in the major semi, uh, beat them in the major semi. It was a written, written off as a fluke. You know, townies can't do it. Um, that kid's not up to it. You know, he'll crack in the grand final. It was all, it was talk like that. Um, but I do recall sitting in the grand final dressing shed before the game, and back then there was media coverage. Coverage of rugby league here was unbelievable. Like all the local businesses supported. You go to the Commonwealth Bank and get your townies money box. Townies money box. Money, townies money box. Magpies money box. Eridor Eagles money box. Are you serious? Oh, it was it was a big deal. Oh, um, that's awesome. Because it was such. That was what people did on their weekends, you know, followed the townies. You know, I grew up in a street where they had an international townie, uh, Bernie Drew, who ended up, he played for Newtown, played for Gosford, captain coached, um, won premierships here after being in Queensland and northern New South Wales. I went to school with his son. He was my under-16s coach. So that's that's who was guiding you. That They're the people you looked up to. Um, I had to burning ambitions in my life and one was to play first grade with the Gosford Townies and was told as a junior you're not good enough uh-huh. and to join the police force and got told I couldn't do that either because they said my eyesight wasn't good enough. Well, I've always been pretty determined and I trained my backside off 
to play first grade and made it and um, and got it into the police. But um, back to the dressing shed, I remember Harry Pomfret, who was a Gosford junior. He was the local rugby league man on 2GL at the time and um, they were interviewing um, the Dawson twins in the corner and I, I was, you know, at 19 years old, I was... I just kept Star the place stuff, and yeah. sat in the corner yeah. and they said um, there, there's a question mark over the ability of young Grant Cook to handle the pressure of a grand final in his first year in first grade and I don't know which one of the Dawson said it but he said um, we know he's got it and if he didn't have the ability to handle it he wouldn't be in the side. So I grew three foot. Right in front and, of you, but that's a tough question right in front and, of you, uh, really, you know. And Andy Connolly was a good mate of mine because I worked at the meatworks at Gosford before I joined. That was the pathway. You the know, pathway? The pathway for Gosford Townies was you went to work at the meatworks and Man's then you moved on to your career. Yeah, Man's Road meatworks. meatworks. And Andy Connolly, who was a prop in our side, he was a 29-year-old prop. Um, I was taller than he was, mm. but he was as tough as nails, uh, from Bristol boy, hard, and um, I was terrified. Yeah. And uh, that was the first idea I saw of rugby league professionalism because they, uh, before that, we all went to the, after we won the major semi, we were the first team into the grand final. So we went and watched, I think, where we played Erinner in the, in the final. Yep. And then as a team, we all went together. Um, before the grand final, um, we went over to the Leagues Club into a room by ourselves. They they spoke to us as a as a group, um, which I'd never seen before. It was just turn up when you get there and put your boots on and go and play. Um, and Andy Connolly took me under his wing because he was the old veteran, and he said, "Come on, Cookie, we're going it." We all went as a group to play snooker, and um, Andy Connolly gave me two shots of scotch. Did he really? Yeah, get, said, that, get one in you. Get these in the young bike, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And that settled me and um, the rest of history won the grand final against all odds. And Rod Payne, the club president, who I still see to this day, Rod, he lives at Terrigal around the corner. They, they've had big money on us winning the comp after round six. Did they really? And, he, and as he tells the story, when they signed the Dawson twins, um, one of the Dawsons said, well, congratulations on winning the 78 premiership. Wow, that's a fair bit of confidence coming and it, through, isn't it? And it, and it happened. So. Uh, probably the characters in rugby league have changed a little, a little bit. Was there one or two guys that really kind of had a lot of character or a bit of, um, bit of spark, or just funny blokes? Oh, look, there was Gary Wilkinson was in that side, and the amazing part of the Gary Wilkinson story, poor old uh, Jack Jack Wilco, they nicknamed him, but he's passed away now, but. Um, I think Jack then was 34 and he'd played in a grand final 15 years early with the Townies and won it. Oh, wow. And then he played in another grand final four years later and won it. And then he played in the 1973 side that won it. Mm. And it was a norm generally with the Townies, it was a five-year plan. Every five years, the Townies are in the comp. Well, 73, so 78 was a five-year plan. And Gary was in that side, a very, very funny, um, full-on, driven human being. Who I remember one game at Erinner that year, he split his head open, this before the blood bin rules, and he was, he was like, he was 33, 34, 
and the Aaron had played in white shorts then. I don't know if they still do, but um, white shorts with the blue and red stripes down the side. And um, every player bar none from the Aaron side had blood on their shorts. Really? Where he was he was just a tackling machine. He played for country. Should have probably gone a bit further, Gary, but uh, didn't want to leave Gosford. Didn't want to progress that far, but he was a townies legend. Like He, he was a standout. Uh, the other standout was Trevor Binskin who was in that, he was half back in that side and now they may not have known, but back then Gosford won the University Shield in 74 Yep. and he was the captain of that side and um, he went on the Kangaroo tour with Ian Schubert, Roy Sayleth, Les Boyd um, in 73 as the junior kangaroos. Really? Australian schoolboys? Yeah, he was Australian schoolboy. He came back from that. They won the Uni Shield um, and he progressed through. Uh, Penrith wanted to sign into a lifetime contract. But he was one of those guys that um, he was rather aloof. Um, great guy. But he would do things at training that you, you, everyone, it just everyone would stop and go, you've got to be kidding. Where did that come from? Wow. And I've only ever seen one guy do that. When I went to Coffs Harbour and played up there, there was a Aboriginal fullback named Andy Mulvaney who could do exactly the same things. And I tried my best to get him hooked up with North Sydney. Yep. And Andy just said, I said, Andy, if you could just focus and you, yeah. you've got it. Because I'd only ever seen one guy do amazing things at training, and that was Benskin, and this guy could do the same. He'd do freakish things that would stop players in their tracks and they'd look at each other and go, where the hell did that come from? And he said, I pushed and pushed and pushed. He'd turn up to the game, no boots. No boots? And I'd say, Andy, mate, if you just lock on. And he's, he's actually said to me, Cookie, I don't know what it is. He said, I think it's the Aboriginal in me. He said, you could tell me, exact words, you could tell me to come and see you on Tuesday down at the park and I'll give you 50 bucks and you guarantee I wouldn't turn up. Other things other priorities. Look, he just he was just he was just a wandering spirit. Yeah. And tragically, about three years after I left Coffs Harbour, my mate worked the my flatmate up there who was in the cops rang me and told me that Andy walked out of the Amberlin at Red Rock and walked into the middle of the highway in front of a semi trailer. Oh my goodness. It's tragic. It's tragic loss of a great bloke. Could have been anything in rugby league, but it was just lost lost in time oh. it was tragic waste and you just can't explain it and nothing you could have done would have changed that result no no that was that was his destiny that yeah. was where he was, he was and he knew go. it he knew it yeah and uh, yeah, it was, I was that was one of the really saddening parts of you know being up at Coffs Harbour losing Andy but that was he made the decision and he followed through well, yeah, uh, mentioning uh, Coffs Harbour, um, let's take a little step back there. So you joined the police force in 1979, yep. um, uh, fresh out of the academy. Yep. Where'd they put you? They put me straight to Hornsby. Um, I had a mate there who spoke to the boss, um, great mate of mine from school, Dick Whitaker. Um, Dick tragically passed, passed away 31 years ago. We just had his anniversary. Um, so I went to Hornsby and different police force then. Um, most of you... NCOs, your non-commissioned officers, or the guys training you were Vietnam vets. Really? Oh yeah, most. You know, it was the late seventies. Yep. They got out of the army, joined the 
cops, um, hands-on. The, the, they were the go-to guys. If you wanted to know what to do, they were the guy. Always went to the senior constable. They'd probably seen it all, hadn't they? They had seen it all. They'd done it all. That was it. Was hard one life experience that they based their police work ethic on. Um, they'd pull you aside. Don't do that. You keep your hands in your pockets. We were told back then when you come out of the academy, you keep your ears and eyes open, your hands in your pockets, your mouth shut. Yeah. That's and good, watch and learn. Yeah. And you did. How much of an eye opener was it coming coming in there? You know what I mean. Like you know, you would have been what twenty or, or yeah, nineteen. Was, yeah, I was twenty. That was a year after that. I joined. I joined the cops. I was sworn in a year to the day since we won the grand final. Oh really? Seventeenth September seventy eight. We won the grand final. Seventeenth September seventy nine. I joined the cops. Now, as I said, they were my two main aims in life, and they happened a year apart to the day. Um, but my dad was a cop. Yeah. His brother was a cop. I had sort of grown up family. with policing. I, I remember I remember at East Gosford in the old days, you'd open a drawer and there'd be crime photos in the drawer, you know, that Dad had brought home. He was a detective and, yeah. you know, wanted Blake's photo would end up in the drawer and some crime scene, yeah. black and white photos. And so I was sort of, I was prepared for what was coming. And, and my dad gave me some good advice. He said, whatever you do in the police, don't take it personally. Now, that's a one-liner, but that succinctly wrapped up everything that I did in the cops in a nutshell. Don't, dead bodies, mm. you know, don't take it personally. A lot of people took it personally, and um, and I can honestly say that I never got post-traumatic stress from my work as a police officer. I got it from dealing with senior management, yeah. but I never got it from the work itself because, you know what, what I was confronted with was what I anticipated was going to happen. So I was ready for it, and I didn't take it personally. Was there any times where you were, were really kind of uh, taken back because you were confronted by, say, a you know, pure evil, you know, just a real, you know, real kind of... Well, I had know. been in some situations where, you know, you call it what you like, spider senses, gut instinct, that there was something that wasn't quite right that actually didn't never t- the only <clears throat> the only time I was confronted with something that was quite bizarre was uh, we were on night shift at Hornsby on the, the truck 161 um, and we were doing laps around town um, it was the end of night shift last night uh, used to go for a full week back then and um, I kept seeing this kid walk in the streets and I and I said to Pete Starr who was the, I said that kid, like every time we go to a job, we'd see him in the main business district of Hornsby. And it was two, three o'clock in the morning. He couldn't be more than 15, 16. Mm. Anyway, we we pulled up at our, one of our local drunks was mouthing off, as he did when he wanted a, a bed and a meal. He'd, he'd swear at commuters, or, you know, late night commuters, and we'd go and pick him up. And this kid walked past. I said, there he is again. So while Peter's talking to our old local drunk, Cecil, um, I said, hey, come here. And uh, he goes, yeah, what? And I went, yeah, what? And he had his hands, and he's fidgeting with his hands in his pockets, in a jacket pocket. And I said, take, as it was back then, take your hands out of your pockets when you talk to me. Like it was, 
we were disciplinarian force back then. <coughs> and um, he kept fiddling, and I said, mate, take, I said, take your hands out of your pockets when you talk to me. And he looked at me with this bizarre, evil look and pulled a knife out and thrust it into my tunic. Well, luckily, got my nape Really? And I backed, I jumped back. And he was, he was zoned in. Um, he was going to stab me. And I jumped back. And I could see it. So I withdrew the revolver and yep. said, I aimed it at him. And I said, if you keep walking, um, you're going to be shot. And he just kept, it, it was like he was, it was. In a trance or something. Zarp trance-like state. And I'm screaming, I screamed out to Peter. Peter come round the back of the truck. He pulled his gun out. But he was, if he fired a shot, fair chance he'd hit me. Yeah. And um, I said, mate, keep walking. And I backed into a no standing sign. Well, the realisation came that I could walk backwards around Hornsby all night. This kid wasn't going to stop. And I aimed the gun at his face. And just before I pulled the trigger, I raised the gun and mm. fired. Well, he saw the flash. He might not have seen the last movement of the gun. The shock of the fire, the gun shot. Mm. Um, he dropped the knife. He went into a crouch position, shot, dropped the knife, and we tackled him. And um, we called the night shift detective's car to come and talk to us. And um, they sort of laughed it off. A oh, kid with a knife, you know, yeah. what's big deal? What are you, what are you going on about? You fired a shot. Like, are you kidding? And yeah. I said, well, you know. Yeah, the knife. Have, a look, at the mark, have yeah. a look at the mark in my tunic. Yeah. And there was a mark in the tunic, in the notebook. And um, he went in, the detective said, we'll go and interview him. And when he came out, he said, we're going to charge him with attempted murder. He's been wandering around the streets all night looking, looking for, for a policeman some, to stab. Looking for someone. He got out of bed, <clears throat> hit the street. And that's why we kept seeing him, because he kept seeing the police truck and hoping to engage us. And he did this for two hours until we finally got into a situation where it was face to face. And uh, that was his main aim that night was to go on. He said, I want to kill a policeman. Wow. Yeah, he was 15. 15 years old. 15 years old. My goodness. So that was, that was one situation. I've had... Strange situations where you one up when I got onto highway patrol where you know, there's something not quite right here, but nothing really eventuated. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, but you, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. And you go, something wrong here. Mm. You know, but never got into anything really. Yeah, but it, it, uh, it would have been pretty interesting there. There would have been some characters there too, I suppose, in working through. Oh, and the cops. Yeah, oh, just like, great guys. I remember one night I was on night shift and uh, it was quiet. And I was in the station, and we had the old Sylvester switchboard, you know, the plug-in. Yeah, yeah. And so anyone that needed a line out of the station had to come through me. I'd give them an outside line, and they could ring. Yeah. Um, and I'm sitting there, and I, and they knew I was a bit of a, you know, goer and a bit of a hothead, and and I'm sitting in the station, and the, yeah, Hornsby Police. Yeah, you blokes think you're pretty damn tough, don't you? Hey, hey, pretty, you tough guys. Tough guy, so I said, yeah, mate, what do you want? Yeah, well, how about you get down to the post office and let me sort you out? And I said, well, wait there. So I get up, and we had a, we had a flap in the, in, the, in the counter of the police station. I'm out the door. I walk down to the post office, and here's the handset of a public telephone swinging in the breeze. 
Uh, and I went, he was here. So I put the handset back on, walked back up the station. The station sergeant said, what's going on, Cookie? And I said, oh, some halfwit rang up, wanted to pull me on down at the police, uh, down at the post office. So I was going, uh, I was pretty fit at the time, playing footy and yeah, you know, yeah. full of beans and testosterone. And <laughs> anyway, 10 minutes later, bzzz, yeah, Hornsby police. Ah, you got a bit of ticker. I saw you walking down there. I oh, watched you. Oh, no. Oh, no, yeah, did you? I said, well, wait there this time, and I'm come, I'll come down. So away I go again. Here's the cradle. Uh, the phone hang off, it's swinging in the breeze. You, I, you're starting to smell a rat at that stage? Ah, uh, well, you're only 19, 20, you know. <laughs> and um, so I go back. What happened? And I said, oh, the bike's ringing again. So <clears throat> the phone rings again. Well, I don't pick it up this time. I just open the gap in the thing, out the door, run down there. Here's the phone swinging off the hook and when I turn around to walk back up here's the whole night shift absolutely in hysterics <laughs> laughing at me and what it was was uh, I didn't realise but out in the detective's office you could actually press a button and get a line outside line oh, and I didn't know that they See, got so you I'm, they I'm, got you this went on for three quarters of an hour <laughs> and that was the guy that set that up was uh, again he's gone now Max Burns he was a Vietnam vet Yeah. and that was yeah, and they only did it to you because they liked you. Yeah. You know, it wasn't bastardisation or anything like that. We didn't consider it that. You just, you helped, you held yourself together because what happened in the station yeah. on a on a jocular level could happen out in the street when it's quite serious and you've got to be able to contain yourself. Yeah. So that was right. Oh, look, I've got very, very fond memories of my first three or four years in the cops, the best time of my life. Um and got recruit, got headhunted for highway patrol. So that could be, people can read that ever, whichever way they like. But yeah. that was, mate, the guys on the highway patrol at Hornsby then were just fan, most fantastic blokes. And then my boss in the highway patrol was a guy named Barry Denning, and absolute, he would be the nicest bloke I've ever met in the cops and the best boss. He was one of these bosses that actually cared about his troops. Yeah. He actually took a personal interest in your life. Mm. He'd call you in, how's it all going, what's happening with you? And he called me in one day and he said, Cookie, where are you? Where do you see yourself headed? And I said, don't know. And he said, right, how about you? I went to the country. And this is when RBT was coming in. Yep. Just there was a transition into RBT. It was 83. And he said, mate, go, go to the bush. And I made some phone calls and um, a big list came out of where you could go and I, yep. I could... I rang North Sydney Highway Patrol, who they handled all our transfers in, and they said, um, <laughs> it's quite funny because he said, uh, oh, you're married, young fella? And I went, nope. You got a house? I went, nope. You got any furniture? I said, nope. He said, what do you got? And I said, probably three garbage bags full of clothes and personal items. He said, take your pick. You can have tweed heads, ballon, a coughs, arbor, or Port Macquarie. And you picked coughs? Well, I actually picked tweed heads. But then a guy, the traffic sergeant over there, heard I was going to the north coast, and he got me aside and said, "Mate, Coffs Harbour's got a really good football team. I've rung them. I've recommended you ring North Sydney and get shifted to Coffs Harbour. It's a great town." So I got money to play footy at Coffs. So I changed my mind. I, I, I Tweed and Ballina were the first options, but I ended up at Coffs Harbour and a really good football team. Won a couple of comps there, yeah, but it was. It wasn't as well. It was a, it was it was a hard and fast competition, but there wasn't the 
So we, we had a lot of ex-Sydney first graders would come to the Central Coast, and, and, and some went to the North Coast as well. But, um, yeah, it was... Um, it was a, a very physical comp up there, like a lot of head-eye tackles, and but yeah, um, yeah but mate, um, but work sort of got in the way of. I was on an eight-man high patrol, so you just couldn't you just couldn't organise training and games the way you wanted to because you just didn't have enough guys to cover. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and so obviously you spent some time up there, um, and. Uh, at one point, you left. Uh, you've you've come to that point where you where you've left the police force. Yes. What then? Well, I I actually didn't want to leave the police force. I I injured my knee. Um, I actually injured my knee playing football. But the, I went to see the police medical officer, and he said, "You're going back to work." And I said, "Problem is, my knee was." unstable and I knew it but the surgeon I went to who was well known around here for being a bit lackadaisical and um, got on the drink a fair bit he just said now you're right strap it up you can go back to you can go back to playing and I I could I could pick I'd picked up a instability in the knee just little things you do and you go whoa that doesn't feel right a little bit of a pinch or a little bit and back before you went back to work in the cops and you had to go to Sydney to the police headquarters interviewed by the police medical officer and then he would say right you're right to go back and I went down there and he sort of made out he inferred that I was malingering malingering yeah well that was it and no no one wanted to get back to work quicker than I did like I loved it I loved going to work I used to get disappointed when leave came up that's what the cops was like then and I I wouldn't be the only one that would say that back from that the early 80s in the police force and I went yeah okay anyway it was around the time that they were discussing building a new police station at Gosford and we were, they were still in the old sandstone building in Man and Georgiana Terrace, yep. which is still there. It's a musical society now, but my yep. dad had worked there, my brother had worked there, um, and they didn't have the capacity to ship new cops to Gosford. So they, we used to come up from Hornsby and fill in on night shifts to give the local blokes a night off because they were doing night shift every three weeks, yep. which was against the rules, but they had no choice yeah. if they wanted to man the vehicle. So anyway, um, I came up here on a night shift and um, a guy came out of that old Broadwater Hotel, which yep. is, the building's still there, but it's, you know, that was that's our local drinking hole, and he shouted obscenities at the police car, and of course I'm out the door and I'm off, chased him up the back, and as I jumped over a wall to try and get him, it had been raining, and the knee buckled went inwards gave away and I I collapsed onto it and bounced off it and went oh. holy hell end up at casualty that night the knee blew up again and um, when I went back to my doctor he said look I won't send you to Dr X here I'll send you down to Merv Cross so I went to see Merv Cross at North Sydney and uh, St Leonard's and he just said uh, oh he was at Bantry Bay Road at um, French's Forest then Merv world's nicest bloke and um, he just said, have a look at this. And he actually got my knee and twisted it in this bizarre angle. And he said, look at that. No and arguments? I'm, no, I'm sitting there, no, no pain. And I went, whoa. He said, your cruciate's gone, your medial's gone, your lateral tendon's gone. You probably crushed the meniscus on the outside of the knee. <coughs> you need surgery, son. And uh, I said, well, can you ring the PMA, police medical officer, to tell him? Because he, 
he questioned, but uh, anyway, he rang and they just said, it's our problem now, we forced him back to work. So <coughs> the knee injury reoccurred when I was at, in the detectives at Eastwood um, in the early 90s and uh, required more surgery and seven surgeries later I was out of the police force. Oh, wow. Hmm. Well, um, probably a fair bit of disappointment not being able to leave on your own terms, medical? Yeah, it, it was, because I, I, I said to him, look, if you transfer me to Gosford um, and I don't have to travel on a train, I can rehab the knee and get back to full duties. No, you're mm-hmm. out. And this was Royal Commission time and yeah. I was a detective and, you know, the feeling in some sectors of the police forces, they're all corrupt, but we just didn't catch them. And um, I did see a bit of paperwork that indicated they wanted any long-term detective, sick leave long-term, out of the job. And I was trying to negotiate my way back to work and they were trying to negotiate me out of the job. And the police medical officer told me in the end when I was showing some resistance to departure, he just said, you apply for a um, medical discharge or I'll apply for it for you. Oh, wow. So that was it. And I left it another six months, lodged my paperwork, and that was it. I was gone. But And then I worked on my knee for two and a half years to get it right because yeah, I couldn't get it straight. Yes. But I eventually got it. I, and I wanted him, I said to him, mark it in the, I want it marked in the paperwork that I'm telling you I can get this knee right. I know my knee. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, your surgeon doesn't agree. I said, yeah, but it's not his knee. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I got it. I got it. Like, I mean, I don't do anything stupid with the knee now, but it's been reconstructed twice, and I'm still, still, I'm still active. Still mobile. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so obviously, after you let, left the police, you've um, probably did a, you mentioned before, you probably did a, um, you know, a few little kind of interesting things, running pubs and stuff like mm. that. Um at what point did you start to look at um, contracting and security contracting? Well, I got out and, as I said, I was, the knee wasn't right, but I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. <clears throat> and I met a woman who uh, I got, ultimately got engaged to and um, that eventually fell apart. And I was sort of, the knee was coming good. I was doing a bit of labouring work for a mate of mine and the building trade. And um, Iraq was on. Kicked off. And I thought, oh, that ain't me. And there were, I knew there were opportunities over there for security operators. And um, one day out of the blue, I got a phone call from a guy named Jim Young who was on the armed hold-up squad at Newcastle when I was up there on the regional crime squad and he said to me hey I believe you're interested in going to Iraq and I said how the hell did you know that and he said oh I got my informants anyway he explained that his son was over there doing um, supply contracting for the US Marines with a American partner and the it was moving from supply to the US Marines to infantry being sent into Iraq on convoys and he was going to go and he wanted a backup. And I'd been on special weapons and operations yep. and Jim knew that and so I had weapons handling background and he said, would you like to go? And I said, oh, and I, the, the, my relationship had broken down. Nothing holding you that. back. I was footloose and fancy free and I went, yeah, I'd love to go. And six weeks later I was on the ground in Iraq and 
moving from Kuwait, well, flew into Kuwait and then convoyed across the border and up to Baghdad, which is about 500, a bit over 500 kilometres, but uh, probably at that stage the most dangerous piece of roadway on the planet. And um, I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing going. Money was good. And that's how that's how my contracting career kicked off. That would have been a bit of an eye opener, wouldn't it? You know what I mean? Just you know, oh, labour, you know, uh, you know, labouring for your mate, you know, building homes to going to the most, you know, the the most dangerous region on the planet. Yeah. You know, travelling, you know, uh, using your your weapons handling kind of skills. Oh. It must have been just surreal. It was it was it was actually quite surreal, like convoying up through on um, MSR Tampa. Tampa South, so Tampa South is Kuwait to Baghdad itself, and uh, I remember looking out the window, of the, we were in a Humvee at one stage, and I looked out the window and there was a, a herder with his goats in in the desert with his staff, like it was a biblical, biblical scene right in front of me, and I'm going, have a look at this. I took a photo of it, and I sent it back in an email, and I said, I, I could be... This could be 2,000 years ago. And here we are looking at this. And here he is standing there with all his desert garb on, yep. with his goats looking out over the desert. And I went, have a look at this. It was, it was, it was highly fascinating. But, you know, having said that, I was lucky to get there because not long, I went in the August of 2004, in the March, I fell off a building at, I fell eight metres off a building at um, Avoca. Wow. And survived it. Land, land on your head? Luckily. <laughs> no, I, um, I was, we were finishing up a job and I was with Keith, my mate Keith White, who was, uh, who'd married a uh, rello of mine and he needed a labourer. And we were just finishing up this job and I was, I, being a perfect, I got this perfectionist slant in my character and I saw one little bit of paintwork that I'd done that just wasn't right and... We were just about to pull the scaffold down. It was on a, a, a pole home on the side of a hill, so I'm on the highest point. Yep. And I've reached out. The dew was still on the um, Scaff- scaffolding, and I reached across and got it. I, I prepared the paintwork and slipped, and we pulled the cross members out <gasps> inside the scaffold tower, and I grabbed hold of something, and it swung me inside the scaffold tower, and, and I, I was facing up horizontal yep and on here i go and i just braced and like we'd go from work to the gym yep every day yep so i was fit and healthy and i hit the ground in perfect alignment with the ground itself what i hit it was slightly uphill well i was i arched my neck forward i braced i knew it was coming yep braced and it knocked the wind out of me and knocked me out and knocked my, out yeah and my dog raced down and uh, what woke me up was a dog licking my face well, I'd cut on my head I don't know how I got that and I woke up and I, the labourer was looking over me with this look of horror on his face and I all I can remember was my knee hurt it must have been from the impact yep. and my knee, the knee that I'd had reconstructed hurt and I put it up on one of the cross members as you, you, you raise an injury up it was yep. all, all on autopilot and then I blacked out again and then I heard sirens and I was in this sleep-like state where I was, and I dreamt that I was still in bed and I thought, I better get up, I've got to get to work. 
Yeah. And then I heard a siren. I heard a chopper. The chopper. And I heard this. I heard a helicopter, and I thought that must be for the guy that's fallen off the house at Avoca. But it wasn't. There wasn't a chopper for me. No. It, there was a chopper going over, and my mind was telling me, in, in my unconsciousness, that that chopper was for the guy at Avoca who's fallen off the house. So I was third partying. Yeah. And then I heard a siren. And then I sort of came to a little bit, and there was people, am- you know, blue uniforms over the top of me, ambos and cops, because they'd been caught because an industrial accident. Yep. And I heard, I-, I heard a voice say, "That's Cookie. He's an ex-copper." And I don't know who said it with it because we knew the ambos very well back yep. then. We we're all sort of all yeah, nurses, ambos, cops. We're all interlinked. Yep. And then I woke up halfway to Gosford Hospital and um, I said, he said, how are you feeling? I said, oh, okay. Um, he said, you've had a big fall, eight metres. And I went, yeah, I, I remembered it. I remembered the fall. Like, I mean, yep. And ended up in hospital and about three o'clock, um, uh, got up, rang a mate to come and get me. And they said, oh, you're not, he's not going, he's staying overnight. And I said, I'm not staying here. I said, and they x-rayed me, but I was twitching my body yeah. and going, well, that's not broken. That, that part's Just not doing right. a bit of a self-assessment here. The yeah. neck's not broken. I can move it. And a real surly nurse came in and she goes, um, well, they're going to take you to the wards now. And I said, I'm not staying. I'm going home. She said, what? I said, I'm going home. She said, have you had a piss yet? And I said, no. She said, well, you're having a piss before you go. And I said, okay, well, go and get me a bottle. So I peed. I knew what they were looking for. Blood. And she she left and she goes, you're not going anywhere. There's blood in your urine. And I said, give me a look at it. And it was orangey. It, was, it wasn't red, yeah. but it was a orange. It yeah. was tinged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, listen, I said, I, I've had a look at it. It's I'm not bleeding internally. I said, look, I've fallen eight metres. Would it be fair to assume that I would discharge some blood into my urine as a result of an eight metre fall? She goes, yeah. And I said, well, there you go. That's what that is. I said, that's if that was blood red, I'm not going anywhere, but I'm, I'm not staying here based on that. She said, yes, you are. And I said, go and get me the doctor. So a really good Irish doctor. He was fantastic. He came in. He said, what's the problem, Cookie? And I said, look, I'm not staying I'm leaving. I've got a mate out there ready to pick me up. And I'm leaving. So we can do it the easy, like the old cop thing. You the, the easy way or the hard way. way. The hard way. And yeah. I don't want to do it the hard way, mate. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do your deal. If I wake up tonight at 2 o'clock in the morning and a stream of blood comes out of my ear and I'm straight back here. He said, will you promise me that? And I said, without doubt. I said, I, I said I'm, I'm cooling off, but I'm feeling okay. And he goes, well, you want to go and buy yourself a lottery ticket because anything above a five-metre fall is considered fatal fall. And they sent a guy up from the DLI from Sydney. Really? To do the investigation because they got told it's a fatal fall. A guy's fallen eight metres off a scaffold. Anyway, I went, I said to Bill, Bill Slater, who picked me up, I said, take me back to the work site because I don't want Keith getting in the crap over my negligence because it was. You you extended yourself. You weren't properly harnessed. No, I should have been, but I wasn't. It was just a little bit of paint, yeah. and so 
I walked back onto the site. And more relief for Keith too, I suppose. Oh, well, Keith, I'd, I'd rung oh Keith yeah. and said, mate, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. And anyway, I got there and the and the guys there, the investigators there, and he said, uh, yeah, can I help you? And I said, yeah, mate, I just want to talk to you. He said, are you the manager? I said, no, I'm the, I'm the flyer. He said, the what? I said, I'm the bloke that fell from up there. He said, you're kidding me. I said, oh, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I, I can, I've got the aches and pains to prove it. Yeah. And he went, wow. Um, and then Keith turned up and we had a discussion and he said, right, um, everything looks good. Um, yep. Fix this and this, and no matter yeah. what's going away. So Bill says to me, he said, "Look, I'll take you home, but mate, you got to go to the pub. No one falls eight metres, goes to hospital, <laughs> goes back to work, and goes to a pub yeah. on the on the way home. You got to go to the pub, Billy. And wow. I, yeah, right. Out. So we went and had two schooners at the Terrigal Hotel, and I said, mate." might be time you took me home. I'm a bit stiffy. I'm a bit um, sore. I was stiffening up. Yeah. You know, it was like playing a really hard game of football and I said, I'm, take me home. Yeah. And that was on the Thursday. I went back to work on the Monday and on the Tuesday we were handing beams up through the middle of the house. Yep. And um, as a finisher and um, I twisted and cracked a, a rib in my back, let go. It must have been... Holding on by an inch, yeah. And when I twisted to lift this beam up, it took the wind straight out of me. I said, Keith, I'm going to go. I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I went home for a week and then we finished that job and then made a couple of little jobs and then, um, yeah, I was off to Iraq in the August of uh, that year, 2004. Yeah, that that would have been pretty exciting work. Any uh, any close calls over there? Oh, yeah, over the time we had... um, I mean, most of the most. So I was working for a mob called Wolfpack, who was um, the guy was quite insane. Wolfpack, Wolfpack, he called it. Now he was ex-US um, Army. Yep. And he he was on a flight line and got out of the at a base in Kuwait, and he saw an opportunity to provide um, generators and ISO containers to uh, the US Marine Corps. Yep. So he was ringing up um, Dennis, my mate. Yep. He was ringing him to regarding he was working for Craig Industries here, who provided uh, armor, armor plating, body armor, stuff like that. And he, Dennis, was just a freak at this sort of stuff. He's an ex-cop. Yep. Dennis is uh, Jimmy Young's son, so Jimmy's yeah. the one that called me about supporting. Yeah. And um, this guy said, will you come and work for me in Kuwait? Well, he Jim, he, he needed backup. So he said, so the the guy running Wolfpack wasn't going up into Iraq, but Dennis wanted to and he needed someone with him. So that's how I got the start. Um, and he was he was quite mad, this guy. He reckoned he had CIA operatives working for him and he was just, he was away with the fairies, the guy. Um, and the great thing was we'd load up in um, um, Kuwait, uh, get the convoy staged, head out of Kuwait to the Sapwan border crossing and we'd blast off with full US um, Marine Corps support and we'd go from um, convoy base to convoy base up till we got to uh, Baghdad and then we'd restage and head west because the western part of Iraq, Anbar province was US Marine territory. 
greatest bunch of blokes I've ever worked with. Really? Oh, just couldn't do enough for you. Aussies in US military uniform. Really? Just, just great. Couldn't do enough. Thanked you all the time for supporting us and and bumped into a gunnery sergeant called Jeff Loring, who was just a great, just great people. So what we'd do, we'd, we'd head to Fallujah and then we'd hub out of there, so all our equipment would get dropped and we'd go to forward operating bases in the vicinity of Fallujah and then we'd head west to Al-Assad Air Base, um, which was another major Marine Corps hub. The Australian SAS took Al-Assad in the first push. They were the ones that uh, liberated Al-Assad Air Base. I ended up living there between there and Fallujah. Yep. And then we'd head to... Um, out, out of the border areas to all forward operating base with ISO containers which were for storing bodies, storing food. Um, we lived in them actually because we were fully air conditioned. We had we had bunks in them. So yeah. so and then we'd fly back from Al Assad to Ali Salim in Kuwait. Go back, have a couple of days down. Go back to Camp Victory, Kuwait. Load up another. 15, 20 ISO containers with their backup generators and away we go again. So we just kept doing that loop. Um, and I stayed for six months doing that. And I would have stayed for a year. My plan was to stay for a year to get film a bank up with, you know, after the breakup. And yep. um, after six months, um, the principal, this guy <laughs> who owned Wesp, uh, Wolfpack, Captain, Captain. Well, shall we say Captain Wolfpack? Oh yeah, he was. He, we got called. Dennis and I got called in by the um, head charangs of the Marine Corps in that in Fallujah, and uh, they said, "Look, you're easy along with you, reliable. We touch. We we want something at a place. You're there. Bang. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, look, we need this, 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 and this." And we're happy to pay cash. And there were just, I'm telling you now, there were boxes of cash. Yeah. Like Iraq was awash with US dollars. Yeah. So we made the mistake of telling um, Captain Wolfpack that <laughs> what was on offer. And he said, well, what, what, how would we do it? I said, well, what we do is um, we'd get an invoice. We'd say so they want ice and containers with air conditioners for accommodation. And they want um, shops like shut up so you've got yeah. green beans and you've got subway and you've got <clears throat> so they could come in and we, we supplied the buildings they'd fit inhabit them, them yeah fit them out and all they want is a, a written invoice they'll pay us cash i'll fly from fallujah to al-assad i'll get on an a-space flight to alia salim hand you the bag of money i'll jump back on a herc i'll go back to um al-assad I'll helicopter back to Fallujah and we'll start again. And he viewed that as a threat to his power base. Yep. Um, we spoke to his, when we got back, he, uh, we, we actually flew into a um, um, base called Doha, yep. for, um, base Doha in Kuwait City. And um, we got confronted at gunpoint by security because he'd told them we had explosives on board. And all I had on board was a, a puppy that oh, I'd really? smuggled out of Kuwait, out of Iraq into Kuwait to get to America, a uh, little dog. And, yeah, okay. um, and I, I'm up against the wall at gunpoint, and I said, 
know, Captain Wolfpack did, yeah, 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 we, we got to search all your gear. I said, no, what an arsehole. Yeah. Uh, and he had our passports, see. So we had to go and see him, and yep. um, we went and saw his Kuwaiti business partner because the the terms of doing business in Kuwait is you have to have a Kuwaiti business partner who's yes. the dominant financial yep. and percentage-wise partner. We went and saw him. He was a lovely, lovely bloke, and he, and he this Captain Wolfpack had him absolutely convinced that the CIA were, you know, involved and mm. so we had him spooked with all this nonsense yeah and um he actually rang the cia with some fraudulent information captain the captain did and they showed up at the mr Carger's residence in kuwait really? with their cia shirts on which gave him the impression that oh, the cia is right and all it was the cia walked out shaking their heads going what a wanker but Mr. Carger didn't know that. He That's just right. saw the CIA shirt come and go and went, oh, he is connected to the CIA. He's probably, it's true. Probably so, not, uh, in, you know, probably not aware or exposed to the, yeah. to the, uh, yeah, well, he the subtleties know. of he, bullshit that goes along. Yeah, he used his inexperience against him. So he wanted us to keep working for him, Mr. Carger, and he said, is he going to be involved? And he mm. uh, said, yeah. And he said, oh, we're not interested. Can we have our passports? And he said, I'll, I'll get your passports. I'll, I'll organise your flights home. But please consider coming back because there was millions of dollars yeah. involved in this. And But you couldn't you couldn't put up with the um, the Walter Mitty that we were working for. <laughs> Walter Mitty. Well, he came up once to, to Fallujah and wouldn't get out of the truck. And we met him and he wouldn't get out of the truck. And he stank like a polecat. Like, you've really? got no idea. And we're saying, Mark, go and have a shower. No, 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 man, no. Terrified. terrified. Absolutely terrified because he was in Iraq and it was Fallujah. And, mate, he got in that truck and he hightailed it back. Well, when he when he hightailed it back to Kuwait, the new guys he was bringing on board because his enterprise was expanding, yep. he told them all these war stories about how he'd got on the top of the truck and shot this guy with the thing at the... You know, it was just... Just all bullshit. That's just ru absolute rubbish. Yeah. He's just a lunatic. And he ended up coming unstuck because he um, he let his insurance for personnel lapse. And a guy... We used to we used to convoy out to near the um, the Jordanian border at a place called KV, Korean Village. Korean Village was a, a village built by Koreans when the Western Highway was built. Yep. And that became a Marine Corps hub. And it was called FOB KV. Yep. And on the way out there, you'd go to Fob Hit. Now, Hit's a very uh, ancient town in Iraq history. Mm. And it gets mentioned in the Bible, Hit, and there was a Fob Hit. Anyway, you'd go from Hit across a dry riverbed to get back up to our, the, uh, the Al-Assad Air Base on top of a plateau. And some new guys came in, his operatives and got hit with an IUD. Nearly took the guy's leg off. Oh, wow. And when they went to get the insurance money, no was there, there was no insurance. Oh, wow. So he got, he ended up getting, um, he got, they really got into him, the, uh, the American equivalent of the DLI, really went him and stripped him of like hundreds of thousands of dollars and fined him and, but he just thought he'd do it on the cheap. So that's it. that was after we had gone, because um, Dennis contacted me and said, have a look at this, and here it was, a clip in a Washington 
paper about yeah. how we'd been, you know, done the wrong thing. So uh, we left that one and... Um, it's probably not what you need, is it? You know what I mean? You're uh, over there, you're in the middle of a war zone and you've got, you know what I mean? Oh, this lunatic. Basi- basically a delusional guy. Uh, he was, he was, actually, he was quite mentally ill. He was, he actually believed the bullshit he was telling other people. Like, he, he believed it, no doubt. But funnily enough, so I... <laughs> So we're in Fallujah. We're trying to get out of there. He wa- he wants us out. We're trying to get choppers from Fallujah to Al Assad. Yep. I'm trying to get the dog out with me, the puppy. And um, I'd contact a woman who worked for Paws in Kuwait, and she was expecting me. So um, it was middle of the night flights on two. Um, sh- <coughs> well, they're like a Chinook, but they're a smaller version of this. I think they're a C-26, but. So you'd sit there in the dark, waiting, mm. and when the helicopters would land in the dark, they'd go, you'd be listed as A space, mm. which means your own can go if there's available space. And after three nights, we finally got a lift. I ran to the truck, got the dog that was in a parachute bag in a box, yep. jumped on, um, had my fingers in the dog's ears because it's... We had, we had earmuffs on, but the dog didn't, and uh, got that to Al Assad. Took the dog to a U.S. vet, um, yep. army vet. Got the dog checked out, and he said, "Yeah, dog's healthy. It's a border collie." It was only a pup, and um, he gave me a tranquilizer to put under the dog's skin when we were going on the flight into Kuwait on the Hercules. Mm-hmm. So we were on a space that day, and I had to make sure we were on the flight before I gave the dog the injection because I only had one. Mm. Anyway, we got it down there, and we got off at Ali Salim, and the big, this big black guy, was calling me off, calling us <coughs> off the flight. Yep. And as we got to the ramp, we had to stop to let guys get off the ramp, and he looked down, and the dog's nose poked out of the bag because oh, oh, it was hot. Yeah. And he just looked down, and he goes, "I didn't see nothing," and just kept wow. waving us off. And that was the dog that was in the bag when they when they said you got live ordnance. I said the only live ordnance I got made is a dog in that bag. And so we got to the Crown Plaza in Kuwait uh, the night before we left. And um, the, I had photos of the dog on having the chicken nuggets from rim service. Yeah. And but while we were waiting, so when we're going into the Crown Plaza, I said to Dennis, "I'll keep this bag. You go through." And um, and. Everything's x-rayed mm. going in. Mm. Oh, I've gone, oh, no. And I was funneled. I couldn't go back. Yep. So I put the bag on the x-ray and I walked around, went through the x-ray hoop, got to the other side, just grabbed the dog and started walking and, I, and the image was frozen on the x-ray machine. And uh, <coughs> this big, he looked like a Moroccan, massive guy, security there at Crown Plaza, Kuwait. He goes, sir, sir. And I said, yeah, mate, what's up? He goes, he points at the image on the screen. Is Doc? I says, yes, he's Doc. <laughs> he goes, he points again. Is live dog? I said, yeah, it's live dog. And I unzipped the bag and the dog's head popped out. And I had a, um, a, a passport wallet that had a gold coat of arms on the front, Australian coat of arms. Yep. And I pulled it out of my pocket and I said, mate, Australian Embassy. The dog's going to Australia. Um, oh, dog stay with you all the time? Dog stays with me the whole time. <coughs> he goes, okay. Really? So I said to Dennis, you go and pay 
for the room, I'll go and sit over on the side of the little lounge area. And while I'm sitting, there's a guy, guy sitting there, and I said, G'day, mate, here you go. And he said, Oh, g'day. Oh, Aussie. And he goes, Yeah. He said, What are you doing? I said, I just come, <coughs> just coming out heading home. And he goes, Oh, oh, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, I'm working for Armour Group. Um, are you interested in more work? I said, Oh, yeah. And he said, I'll oh, ring this number. And we had our body armour because body armour was expensive, and we weren't giving it to. No, Mr. Captain Wolfpack. Wolfpack. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. wasn't getting the free body armor. No, and he said, "Bring him up, bring the office." Anyway, the guy came over, Mark, great guy. He bought the body armor for fifteen hundred bucks, which paid for our accommodation. <coughs> gave us a number to contact, and that's how I got my next gig over there by contacting Armor Group and got onto a police training contract. <laughs> so everything was. Rolling meant, along, meant, meant, meant to happen to be, for a reason, and that's how it rolled. Yeah, from there. And once you, once you got in there and you became reliable and you didn't panic and you, you know, mm. you were trustworthy. You knew your you, stuff. Everyone's going. Yeah, get him, get him in here, get him. And that, for the next seventeen years, that's how it all rolled. Just mm. you know, you're getting you're getting referred all the time. You know, just get get him in here. We need these guys for this. So you know, that's how I ended up in Afghanistan, in New Guinea. Same same deal. Just rolling recommendations, and um, yeah. And that's uh, what they say. That's that's history. Yeah, eh? that's the way it goes. So um, obviously, um, you've taken a break from the security now. You've you've looked after um, you know some home home affairs. Mm. Um, what next? Well, I don't know. I'm at a bit of a loose end because um, my mum got Alzheimer's and I was renovating my home to get her in with me or to sell the house and get a unit uh, in the local area because I wanted to get her with me so she'd be looked after properly. And um, we, I got the Selling Houses Australia, did my house up for that, and that was just fluked at. But yep. I thought, how good's this? Saved me a stack of dough, stack of time. And as we were about to go to auction, mum passed away suddenly. Mm. So I've sort of written the rest of this year off. And there's opportunities again overseas. Um, and I'm just waiting on word. And it's connected with my previous experience in New Guinea. Same company, different uh, AO. Yep. And so I'll, I'm going to put the place on the market at Terrigal in the next two months and see where life takes me. Maybe it'll be back to the Middle East. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll meet the love of my life in the interim period. And Maybe you might get to tweet heads. <laughs> Who knows, eh? Hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. That's the way life goes, mate. Mate, well, look, I can't, appre- I can't thank you enough uh, for coming in and having a, having a chat to us on the long road here. It's been uh, amazing. Um, obviously, I know you, so uh, it's... Uh, the, you're never short of a laugh, and never short of a uh, never, you know, never short of a laugh and oh, a dig. Okay. And um, you can't take it. You can't take life too seriously. We're not getting out of this alive, isn't that the line? <laughs> <laughs> Look, okay, uh, Grant Cook. Thank you very much for joining us on the uh, on the long road. Hope to see you back here at some other stage. But um, thank you very much, and all the best. My pleasure. Thanks, thank Mark. you, sir. All the best.